Hi all and welcome to Rewind the Movies and this week's episode we're looking back at 1987's Mannequin. It stars Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall, Estelle Getty and everyone's favourite security slash police officer G.W. Bailey. A modern retelling of the Pygmalion myth, the film revolves around a chronically underemployed, passionate artist named Jonathan, who lands a job as a department store window dresser. The mannequin he creates becomes inhabited by the spirit of a woman from ancient Egypt, but only Jonathan can see her as a real person. The film received a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Original Song for its main title song of Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship, which is an absolute classic 80s tune. But with regards to the rest of the film, we didn't really watch it growing up, so it's been good to revisit a film that we don't have much nostalgia about. But what did we think? Anyway, here's the episode and here's our thoughts. So this was you a choice, um, <laughs> and it, it, I'll be honest with you. When you mentioned it, it was a little bit left field. I didn't expect it, and I'm gonna ask you the question then. You know, this at this point we always ask, but like, do you have memories of it, and had you seen it before? Uh, yes, to both. I I I I seen it a few times growing up, mainly because it would be on TV. I, as you can imagine, having seen it now because this is. This is the first time you've seen it, I think, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It's a it's a film that would just be chucked on TV to cover a slot, isn't it? I, I think so. Um, so I I say the first time I've seen it, I've definitely seen elements of it. I've mm. definitely seen some scenes. You know, as soon as you see Kim Cattrall for the first time in the shop, I know you see her in Egypt first. But do you know when she changes from a mannequin? Which I did not remember. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll come to that scene in a bit. But when she changes, and she's just there, and you have this sort of like, I don't know, I can only describe it as a bit of music that's very similar to like Bewitched or something like that. You know the TV series? Not the band. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, not, not the band. Yeah, the, uh, the sort of like tinsel music, isn't yeah, it? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I remember those scenes. Mm. I, or I, I have a memory of them. So I wonder whether I would have caught them on TV but not really watched it. Yeah, so I, I definitely watched it on TV a few times growing up. But my main memory of Mannequin, the film, is from the song Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect it at the end. No. My father bought a triple album when I was about, I think, I must have been about 10. It must have been 1990 or 1991, so it was 9 or 10. And a triple album of the 80s had been released. And my father bought it. And, of course, me and my brother loved the music on the album. And Matt and Starship was one of the main songs on there. So of course you play the album constantly, and you just Starship is one of those bands, and certainly this song, which is just something I've grown up with, and I've just heard. It's on like playlists that I make myself. It, did it was it released for the film, or you know, or was it like? What, what I'm trying to say is, 
you get films which have a really prominent song in it and then the song does really well. And was it the case, do you think, for this? Or or had it come out previously and they've just used it? And I might, I'm putting you on the spot here. You might not know. Well, I, well, I, I believe the song was written for the film because it uh, garnered an Academy Award nomination. Ah, oh, did it? Yeah. I don't, and as far as I'm aware, I don't think you can get Academy Award nominations unless you write it for the film. Well, yeah, yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so much about this film, right? I was watching it. How good? Was... Let's. I got a minute though. How good is the soundtrack? Oh, the soundtrack's amazing. Yeah, no, that's the point, isn't it? Prop, proper eighties, and you know, for me and you, it's like hundred percent up our street. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. I was struggling a little bit with the rest of the film. Yeah, it's 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 not great, and and I don't want to be the person that says this, right? But I'm gonna say it anyway. I think this film was made for a certain perceived audience, mm-hmm. and that perceived audience is women. And I, I hate saying that because I don't want to say, "Oh, this film is for men. This film is for women," because. Anyone can enjoy any genre of film, right? Yeah. But I do think that they really just try to pull on that. Um... What you're saying is the studios viewed this as a woman's film. This, I, be- this I, I believe made so. And released with, in their frame of mind, this was made and released with women in mind. Yeah. Look, it, it, it's a romantic story it's a bit of a fairy tale in the sense of it's a bit like a disney type film or a um yeah like a fairy tale um story where there is this lady who has been banished to lead a certain life until she finds the right person that she can come to life with it's a, you know a little bit like sort of sleeping beauty Oh, I was just—I was going to say the the basic plot. If you remove the 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 shopping mall element and other little details, the basic plot is a rejected Disney film. Oh, it is. I, I, you could say Beauty and the Beast. You 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 know, you know with the sort of um, roles reversed, where it's male. You know, he's cursed and and he needs to find love in order to. Lift the so curse, she, and that's all so, oh, right. So, You're saying she's cursed in this one, and she needs, yeah, 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 to a certain degree. And and I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, it's only until now we're talking about it that I'm thinking actually there's probably a little bit more to the story than I thought. Yeah, but it's hard to get that from the story. It's hard to get that from the film when you're watching it. Yeah, I, I think so. I've got no memories in terms of whether I enjoyed the film or not when I you know, saw it when I was younger, that, which is part of the reason why I suggested we do it, because it is a film I remember watching when I was young, but because I've got no feeling towards it whatsoever, I thought it'd be interesting to just watch it again and see what happened. And I can only apologise because I, I genuinely, I don't think it's a good film. Yeah, but, but I don't think you should apologise because that's ultimately what the podcast is about. It's about revisiting... Yeah, but I don't want to waste your time, but... (laughs) I I don't think we can ever waste the time with some of these films. And, okay, we've done one or two stinkers, I think. But, you know, and we say this all the time, but someone has worked hard to get that film made, um, developed, 
produced out there advertising. So, so you know, you, you've got to give people credit for that. And you can say one more. I know you normally do. I know you normally do this to wrap up the episodes, but it made some money. Oh, damn right it did. And but I think the reason it made money is because they probably targeted it at a specific demographic. Yeah. And. It, it came at a time, well, this was 80s, it was sl- slightly a- later 80s, 87, but it came at a time when you had um, John Hughes films, which was about coming of age, romantic com- um, comedies and things like that, and it does sort of fit into some of those. Well, I, th- I, th- and I, th- I think Andrew McCarthy, he's, he's one of those people that sort of... I'm pretty sure he did actually star in a couple of John Hughes films as well, didn't he? Yeah, no, he did. So, um, funny enough, I didn't recognise him at all be- before the, the, watching this film. And I was I was thinking, who the hell is he? I, I, at one point, I thought, is it Judge Reinhold? Because <laughs> I thought, he, he does look very similar to him. And, you know, I knew straight away he wasn't. But then, funny enough, today I saw um, a movie poster for, and I can't think what it was, but in the film was Rob Lowe, St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire, yeah. Rob Lowe, um, Ali Sheedy, um, Judd Nelson. Yeah. So, you know, he, he was definitely in that sort of brat pack um, type of uh, era and, and, and grouping. Oh, no, I think he was definitely in, I think he was definitely included in the brat pack. But if you'd shown me a picture of him uh, two weeks ago, I wouldn't have known him. Mm. Which... Well, I, I know him from Weekend at Bernie's. Ah, see, and a, a lot of these films passed me by. Mm. I, I think I, I said this when we did... Um... That would be another interesting watch. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, when we did... Oh, Breakfast Club. That's, that's the word I was going to get. Um, when we did Breakfast Club, I think I said in that, a, a lot of these films I haven't really seen. A lot of them are, are sort of deemed to be classics. St. Elmo's, um, I, I, I've never seen. I, think I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's deemed to be a classic, but I think there was a lot of press surrounding it at the time. Yeah, but a lot, a lot of those ones at the time, I think, were churned out. You know, they had a certain casting because the, at the time they knew that those people would do well. Yeah. I tell you what, I'd be able to sing you the song to St. Elmo's Fire. Well, I think St. Elmo's Fire and Mannequin are an example of the uh, title song being better than the film. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And that, that's, not a, that's not a damning indictment of the films because the title songs are absolute classics. Oh, they're bangers. Absolute yeah. bangers. It does lead me to like trying to pull out some of the things that I did enjoy about the film. And... Okay. Um, We've mentioned the soundtrack already. I think it's right up there, right? It, it, yeah. it, it's brilliant. It, it does star, which I, I believe um, the podcasts are one of the podcast's favourite actors who always seems to get a mention. Kim Cattrall? <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, I know it. Sorry, I know where you're going. Go yeah, on. yeah. So um, it's a bit of a shout out to G.W. Bailey, who <laughs> plays exactly the same character he seems to play in every bloody film. I'm starting to think he just plays G.W. Bailey. Well, maybe that's just him in real life. <laughs> yeah. If he's, I don't know, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but, I, but if he's still alive, hopefully he is, 
Um, yeah, we need to get a chat with him. We need to get him on the podcast. Or we need to find a film where he plays a very different role. He's still alive. Oh, well, that's a good thing anyway. But um, <laughs> Maybe when we do Police Academy, we could try and get him on. Well, maybe. I, I Look, I, I find him quite funny, right? Again, because yeah. he plays that certain type of character. He, <laughs> funny enough, he was, I think, my favourite aspect from Short Circuit. Oh, but, he was uh, my favourite thing in Short Circuit. <laughs> And I think that's saying something about short circuit. But right. we know we're saying something about short circuit. The, th- the thing is, right, with GW Bailey in these roles, it's it's bad in a way because he's obviously been typecast, hasn't he? Oh, 100%. Or, or certainly in the films that we've seen, this is what he does all the time. But I also think when you get typecast in those type of roles, you've got to be somewhat good in those roles to get typecast in the first place. So... And look, they're actors. They've got bills to pay. You can't blame them for, oh, of course for doing that. And, and why wouldn't you? If you know how to play a certain character inside and out, why wouldn't you do it time and time? You know, not everyone is bloody... Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, exactly. 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 I don't know how often G.W. Bailey's been put in the same sentence as Daniel Day-Lewis. But... <laughs> well, there's, a, there's the promo for, um, for this podcast episode. Um, one of my other favourite aspects, right, and I got, a, again, a bit of a love-hate relationship with him, is Hollywood. Yes. The, 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 um, the, the window dresser who was there um, prior to Jonathan. Um... I, I'm with you on this, Brad. I, I, when I was... Uh, when I, I, he's one of the things I remember from watching it when I was younger, and I found him quite annoying when I was younger, but watching it this time, I actually found him quite funny. But I wondered if it's because the humour that he he does portray is quite is a little bit adult at times. So yeah, I wonder, I wonder if we you know you got more of the jokes this time round. Can I tell you one thing? Right, I didn't find it funny at the start, but the more he did it, the more I started laughing. Was when he does his clicks. <laughs> I by the end of the film, every time he was clicking, I was chuckling. <laughs> I, I love the part, you know, where they um they go to the other um department store and oh. and Hollywood drives them, but he's got this massive pink Cadillac and then he puts the car cover back on the um when they get there. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh. your favorite scenes, are you? <laughs> um I, I haven't actually got that um as the favorite scene. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I did check about it now that we you know we're talking about Hollywood. I uh, I loved his friendship actually with Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Andrew McCarthy, because let's be honest, the Andrew McCarthy character, it's it's not the best, is it? It's, it? You could see that in a different way. If this wasn't a quote unquote romantic comedy, this would be uh, a drama about some guy losing his fucking mind. Um, or it's a it's a drama about some weirdo who has a fetish of having sex with dolls. Yeah, but of course, I think what takes you away from thinking that, even though I did think it a few times, is the way Hollywood responds to him. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think he Hollywood in a way at the begin towards. The start of the film is almost trying to tell the audience, don't worry about it, or you know, don't think of it in that way. He's because he, he says to Andrew McCarthy's character, What 
you do you or you know don't don't worry about it so i think in a way that's trying to sublimely tell the audience to just go along with the film but yeah look um i get that it's just at the time i was thinking jesus christ this is a channel four or five documentary about um i don't know mannequin fetish yeah 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 exactly titled why i'm in love with my sex doll or something like that or wood for wood <laughs> wood for wood <laughs> uh i um I, I did have a little um memory pop in my head of a story about a friend of ours and i won't name names uh, <laughs> who took delivery of a sex doll <laughs> and we leave uh, best leave her there i think but uh, <laughs> it did pop in there at one point oh fucking hell i've got a couple of other things i'd like to point out yeah go on james spader he's always worth watching i'm a big fan of his i think yeah, he's yeah. a very good actor and i think I did, I did at, at the start, I found him a little bit hammy, but then as the film went on, I thought, you know what, I think he's just, I, I think he's just going for it. Look, I, I think he was told to play it a certain way, because yeah. knowing what other films he's done and knowing how good he is, um, yeah, <laughs> I did find him annoying at the beginning, but, you know, he, he had to play a certain character. He had yeah. to play a villain, didn't he? Um, uh, my favourite my favourite uh, aspect of the film is Kim Cattrall. Without her, I don't think the film works, or you wouldn't at least find it somewhat watchable. I, I, I do think it's one of the better films that I've seen. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of her films in the sense of... I couldn't name many of them. Yeah, but I on a minute now. I, I'm going to pull I, up her filmography, actually. I, no, I've got her filmography in front of me, right? I would say I've seen about five of her films. Well, and that's why I put the caveat in there, the films that I've seen. Right. One of her films is one of... I'm certain, I'm, I think I'm right in speaking for both of us. One of our favourite films. Um, Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. Yeah. Another of her films is, I would say, quite a big film from our childhood, and that's Police Academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got this. <laughs> so if you're saying that this is a third best film that you've seen... And not necessarily about the film, but more about, I think... I was going to say the performance, but then I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not right on that either. The, ultimately, right, she is the, one of the main characters of the film, so she's on screen quite a lot. I, I suppose she is with... Police Academy as well. What what else has she been in? Name some. She's been she was in Porky's, wasn't she? Yeah, she's in Bonfire of the Vanities. Never seen it. She's in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> Never seen it. No. Okay. <laughs> uh she oh, was in house. Is that a Star Trek film? Yeah. Which one would that be? Any ideas? Uh I'm pretty sure that's the it's the sixth film. Oh, yeah, I don't think I've seen it. So it's not the one where Spock's brother goes to find God. It's the one after. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, she was in another film as well called Above Suspicion, but this was only really known because it's Christopher Reeve's final film before he had the accident. Ah, right, okay. And actually, Christopher Reeve plays a 
I think it's a paraplegic or wheelchair bound. He actually plays that type of character. And then like a couple of weeks later, he became that in real life. Like, he fell off a horse, didn't he? And broke yeah. his back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was just scanning through like into a 90s films and I'm I'm struggling here. And yeah, don't even go there with Sex and the City. I still not clear that. The other thing that, because um, I think Kim Cattrall's a really good actress, right? What I what I find quite perplexing is that she got massive success out of the Sex and City, Sex and the City TV series. Like, I know it was about another character, but her character blew up. Like, it, it was she became like the big character in that series, as far as I'm aware. Because she, because that film that that was about empowering women, right? And uh, I'm yeah. no expert in any of that, but it was, it was about empowering them and then being liberated as regards to their sexual adventures, right? Say yeah, yeah. Say so what? Yeah, the basic premise was whatever men can do, women can do. Yeah, as yeah, well. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, and her character was probably the most promiscuous out of all of them. Yes. And and I think that's why it blew up more. Yeah, yeah. Her character blew up more. But my point was, is that even after the success of Sex and City, she still doesn't seem to have found any sort of success or, you know, not that I've seen these films. I mean, some of these films could be good, but, you know, you don't know of her as a film actor after Sex and the City. We know of her as a film actress because we've seen the films or some of the films she was in in the 80s. But most people know her from Sex and the City. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's a shame because I think she's a very charismatic actress. And I think this performance, I mean, she's playing a fucking dummy for God's sake. (laughs) She's pretty much got to bring a dummy to life and make you believe that she's worth falling in love with. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've often ever watched a Kim Cattrall film and fallen in love with her at first sight, but I think she does it really well. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a huge fan of the opening scene, but they've got. Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, they've got to set the scene somehow. You know, in the sense of why she comes alive. Otherwise, she just comes alive. I get them putting that scene in, but I still don't understand the mythology or the the the, the magical workings of how she would then come alive. Yeah. I mean, and there's I, there's a scene halfway through the film where she's talking about previous lovers and she's on about Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, no, so, no. I, and I was going to say this. I think it needed more about that. Because yeah. all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait a minute now. She's woken up previously. But but did they have mannequins back then? Or well, no, she, I mean, did she what? just come alive as an inan- another inanimate object? Yeah. Well, she sculpted and then she came alive. Well, yeah, and if that was the case, then why... And then I read it as the person who created this thing is mm. the one then that can see her. Yes. She has to fall in love with them in or, order to remain. Well, again, this is another problem I've got because the ending of the film... I, I already took it that she was in love with Jonathan, but yet she only became alive and was seen by other people when Jonathan saved her. So if people knew how the the magic worked, 
would they just like try and push her off a cliff and then save her so that everyone else could see her and she become alive for real? Actually, I, yeah, okay, I didn't really take that. In, in, yeah, I think it's a bit confusing. Is it the saving her that makes yeah. her now live outside of being a mannequin? Or is it the love element of it? And yeah, of course, it must be the saving element. Yeah, it's just very, it was just confusing. I, and I think that's one of my, I think that's the biggest problem I have with the film is that I know we're supposed to be doing scenes now, but I, I'm just going to go into it now. The film is 90 minutes, right? Not a lot happens. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of padding right? out. But yeah, not a lot happens. But the actual timeline, the length of time it takes for him to fall in love with her and she to fall in love with him is snap of the fingers. I mean, it's just, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I think there was a point where she came alive. They did one shop window. You got all this fanfare for it. The next night they're sleeping together. They're in love with each other. And I was like, surely you should have like a period of time where they like getting to know each other, you know, that's what would normally take place. But it seemed like they were in such a rush to get on with things, even though they had nothing else to do. Well, technically, he still had a girlfriend at the time. I know. Well, I know. Dodgy. Don't even get me started on how they met. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we come on to some of that in a bit. But let, let, you know, let, let's talk about some of the favourite scenes then. And I, I'll jump in and... <sighs> I did like the end scene where they got married, but only for one reason. And I think that was the song. Yeah. I didn't expect the song to be there. It came on and I was just like, yeah, banger. And then now that you've said that it probably was made for the film, even better. Why, why get married in a fucking shop window? Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can you get married in a shop window? I mean, also, right, he's on the phone to his mother in one scene early on because he thinks he's going nuts. Where's she? For the wedding, <laughs> he's got the shop owner standing next to him. Yeah, yeah. the shop Tip- owner and Hollywood. This was a typical eighties trope, though, wasn't it? If there was a happy ending, the only people that were allowed to be seen at the happy ending were the other characters that you had seen in the film. Yeah. And and it's all rushed. It's like they get married the day after, or or that evening, or whenever it is. It's just like, yeah. come on, life doesn't work like that. Um, but if I've got to put my, um, you know, my choice out there, it would be probably the dancing montages. Okay. I, I I didn't mind them. Again, it's probably because of the soundtracks that, yeah. that, that are attached to it. You know, the, the, there's the one they're up, totally obscene, absurd. Sorry, not obscene. Um, the, well, you can say obscene. If well, you want. maybe. <laughs> but but you know, they, they just go in throughout the entire department store. Trying things on, doing things, and it's and I and I won't come on to it yet, but it, it also comes on to my least favorite scene, and I'll come on to it and changes, but um, yeah, I I don't know, I think it was the music, and ultimately I'm I'm clutching a straws here to find out what my favorite bits are. It's either things with Hollywood or the music element montages, like I said. I I've only got one scene. That I want to highlight because I think the rest of it is just May M E H. I I don't think a lot of the rest of the film, unfortunately. But the one scene I did like, I didn't like the lead up to it because again, 
the chase scene through the other department store. How big is that department store? Because Jonathan is running away from those guards forever. Oh. But regardless of that, the, the bit I liked was when he actually saves her from the from the chipper or whatever it is. I, I liked that element. And I liked uh, that she was she had come to life and this warehouse guy saw it. <laughs> and then the warehouse guy is like desperate to get someone. So he's trying to find a mannequin himself. I did find that quite funny. Yeah, and I, 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 when I was watching that, I remembered that scene. So I've obviously, I remembered elements of it. So I've obviously seen that before. But yeah, again, I checked under that. I, yeah. I, I, I thought it was a nice little twist in it. And, and um, also in that scene, I, I, I love the fact that uh, Estelle Getty, the uh, the department, the department store owner, who plays, I think it's Claire Timkin, her name is in the in this in the film. Uh, she produces this new thing called surveillance footage <laughs> you'd never heard of it before <laughs> hey it was 80s it wasn't video cameras yes well yeah. oh, they weren't around that well uh all right look we've um probably scraped the barrel a bit there with um favorite aspects and our favorite scenes so um you mentioned just now so we're moving on to changes but you mentioned just now with the chase sequence through Elastra, I think, is the department store. Mm. It's one of my changes. It's yeah. and it's not. I think I, it needs to be there. I understand it has a probably a, a comedic element to it, but it's. I just don't think it's very well done. One, I couldn't work out where where he was supposedly going. Two, yeah. the the security guards are terrible at trying to catch him. They're all running through the clothes, just running the bloody aisle. And also, I think that department store has more security guards than <laughs> any store I've ever seen. Uh, and they just took on W.G. Bailey's character as well. Yeah. And he wasn't even allowed to take Rambo with him. He had to have a different dog. Oh, Terminator. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, I'm going to just list through some of my things, right, if you don't yeah. mind. There's a lot of hammy acting throughout the film, over-the-top hammy acting. Um, I understand it in certain parts, but it just seemed everyone ha- had a hammy part at some point. Yeah. Uh, um, the one scene I really disliked because of the way it was shot was when he saves the shop owner at the very beginning of the oh, film. Right. And I don't like it for two, for two reasons, right? Well, no, actually, it's one reason. The stunt work is terrible. And and I think that goes throughout the film as well. The stunt work, that all they did was they sped up the filming. <laughs> and it's like clearly obvious that they've done it. If they had done that throughout the film and done those elements of it, I can sort of accept it and allow it to be there. But just to do it on the one scene just seems a bit ridiculous. It was very basic, wasn't it? Oh, it's like something I would do in editing this podcast. But what you're saying about that scene is is I agree with, and it's one of the re- it's it's a reason why I don't like another scene, and that's the car chase. And, oh, actually, yeah. And I've said it, I don't know how many times on these podcasts. I am not a fan of car chases at the best of times, but when they're unnecessary, 
or stupid or in this instance so fucking loud <laughs> i thought they had turned the tv up like the 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 volume the audio track was just on a different level for the car chase compared to the rest of the film i mean yeah. it just it grated me I, 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 yeah, again, I, I just didn't know why that car chase needed to be in there. You know, there's, there's ways to, to do that, which will bring me on to a couple of other things, right? So let me get my notes. <laughs> Are you the uh, deep intake and outtake of breath? Yeah. I get the whole premise, right? Of when someone sees her, she is a mannequin. Yeah. But when she drives through the city, on the back of the bike, or rides on the through the city, on the back of the bike, holding. Are you telling me that there's not people around who notice them and ride past? Because she's going down the street and she's a human being. But the moment someone from um, GW Bailey's car and John Spader's car, not John, James Spader's car, um, look at them, she's a mannequin. Yeah, and it's I, oh, I, I get it. There's got to be some sort of creative license there but yeah it's um i don't know grated on me a little bit but my biggest change out of all of this and we've mentioned the stunt work is the hang glider scene <laughs> it's shocking and i i don't know if it's and i could see what was going to happen and in my head i was going no don't do it and then they did it and it was terrible. That I and the, I don't know. I, I I would just want to question the person who was in charge of the stunts for this film, mm. and and ask them what their thought process was. And again, I don't want to berate people for doing a job, but you're telling me they couldn't be done slightly different. Anyway, there, there's my changes. Right. Okay. I've got a few here. Okay. Some serious. Some. I've added for comedic effects, so if we're a bit all over the shop here, I apologise. Andrew McCarthy's other jobs at the start. Yeah. How varied and different are they? And also, what, does he just walk up to someone and say, can I have a job, and they give him a job? Like, he doesn't seem to have any trouble finding something else, does he? How did Jonathan and Roxy meet? Because there is no way... Them two should have been a couple anyway. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I, I, I would never put them two together, or those two, not the actors and the actor and actress, the two characters that they've written. Where did they get to get? I don't understand how he met. Did he go? He doesn't strike me as the type that goes to a bar, and he would meet her that way. Did he meet her in a previous job or some? I don't know. There's nothing said about it throughout the film, so I just, I don't know how that's working. Yeah. Jonathan's obsession with the mannequin before it's Emmy, right? I I could completely understand if Jonathan gets obsessed with em, with the mannequin after it's transformed into Emmy, and that's where he starts falling for her, and he's like, right, I gotta be with this mannequin all the time. I can get that, but before they try into pass it off as these as he's like an artist and he's fallen in love with his creation when all he's done is stuck a couple of things together i didn't i don't buy it well in in the synopsis for the movie they they do 
um, describe him as an artist. Yeah, but you haven't seen that. No, 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 exactly. Exactly. How high are Felix's trousers? G.W. Bailey's trousers? <laughs> you know, I didn't know his name was Felix. <laughs> Throughout the film, I just called him G.W. Bailey. I mean, somewhat, he's working in departments, so he can't get trousers to fit him. <laughs> right, a couple of serious ones now. There's some, sl- well, I, I want to say slight, but there's some homophobia from Felix towards Hollywood. Yeah. You know, calls him a few names you wouldn't call him today. Uh, I get it's the 80s, and it was commonplace then. So uh, diff- Different time. Different time, yeah. Workplace sexual harassment. That bloke that Roxy works with <laughs> is unbelievable. I the mean, one, the one she tries to sleep with at the end and then he yeah, can't get it up. But that pissed me off even more. The fact that they wrote it where she was wound up about Jonathan having another woman so she was like she finally caved into this guy who she didn't like at all throughout the film and i was just like oh no that doesn't sit well with yeah, me it didn't need it and then it didn't need that scene as well where yeah you can't get it up yeah and the worst thing about that guy is he blames her for not being able to get it up <laughs> it's her fault i'm sorry but but if you're going to bed with her i mean she's a very attractive woman it's your fault if you can't get it up when he um he starts having a gora i could only describe it as the Sully moment. So when we done Commando recently, when Sully gets rejected by, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, I can't remember her name, the main character in it, and um, and he goes slag or bitch or something. He, ca- he oh, calls the name, then he uh, <laughs> no, he goes you fucking whore. Or that's it. Yeah. That's it. Oh god, yeah. Oh. It's the woman's. Uh, it's the woman's fault or the woman's uh, mistake if she doesn't want to go with you or if you can't get it up. Yeah, good one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the big one for me, right? Was window dressing a big thing in the eighties? Well, hey, I, I don't know because I I asked the same thing uh, when I was watching it. I was thinking, Jesus Christ, people are going mad for window dressing. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's not like this was New York where you got the the big high streets or big stores in New York where you could, you know, in Manhattan where you could kind of understand some sort of publicity about it or but this is in Philadelphia. Yeah. And I'm I'm not aware that window dressing in Philadelphia is a thing. So I don't maybe know. That's, maybe that's something we should look into. Well hey, maybe it's a bloody um maybe it's a career we missed out on. But like you said, maybe it was an 80s thing. Yeah. I do have one final thing. Okay. I've got so, a question for you after this. So. All right. Do you know when GW Bailey and Jonathan start fighting? It just it just happens all of a sudden for no reason. GW yeah, Bailey just starts on him. Yeah. Shocking. Who cleans up the shop afterwards? Because they make a hell of a mess. Plus, there's a bloody hang glider that's just come down three stories or however many. Well, you bring up a good point, but because the cleaners must come in in the morning and go, what the fuck's <laughs> been in here? Who's been jizzing all over these mannequins? <laughs> <laughs> I, that goes to your point about them trying on all those clothes. If he's rubbing up this mannequin with new clothes on, or st- are they putting them back on the shelf? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, go on, what was your question? How do you think 
we could make this film better. Because I, I do think there would be an interesting... I don't think it'd be a romantic comedy, but I think there would be something interesting if you reshape the film or give it a different tone. And I think if you made Jonathan's character more of a... He's obsessed with mannequins, but he's got this job and nobody knows about it. Or alternatively, he's the only one that sees this mannequin come to life, but it's all in his head. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking, is there a, you know, there's a potential horror film there yeah. somehow, you know, where mannequins are coming to life and things like that. But that one about it's all in his head, some sort of like psychological thriller or what have you. Um, to, to be honest, right? I do wonder whether if it was remade and just maybe acted a bit better, I hate saying that, stunt work was better, and because there's probably quite a lot of love for this film from a nostalgia point of view, mm. they might do all right with it. I'm not saying it would be a blockbuster or anything like that. but uh, well, I, I'm going I'm to say, right, I, I don't hate this film. Yeah, I, I mean, we've... We took five minutes and talked about stuff we quite liked about it. So, you know, it's not like this film isn't without its positives. It's just there's too much wrong with it for you to say, well, I'm going to say it now. I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think there's enough in it. We always say this, but I would recommend to a certain type of person. <laughs> I just don't know who that type of person is. I think if someone loved like an 80s romantic comedy i was just gonna ask you can you think of another romantic comedy though that is even remotely similar in splash i'm not I, i'm not saying it's the same level i'm not saying it's in it's this you know it's as bad as this but it's that sort of absurdness you know tom hanks falls in love with a bloody fish for christ's sake yeah but people can see her I, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. But unless you're going down the, the route of bloody Donnie Darko, I can't think of any other films where people can't see the wow. other thing. Wow. <laughs> you just put Mannequin in with Splash and Donnie Darko. Uh, I was after extremes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I don't think anyone's ever done that before. <laughs> what was the other, the other thing? I um oh GW Bailey compared him to Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis. Now see if you remade this film as a psychological thriller and you put Daniel Day Lewis in the Jonathan role, now that's something I would watch. I'd only watch it if GW Bailey was back in it. Oh god. And Come possibly on. Hollywood. Hollywood. Well, he's in number two in he Hollywood. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you heard there was a number two, but I um, admittedly never seen it. All right, look, we, 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 we've <laughs> we've come to a point with our recommends, which is probably a no, unless you find found this one person who loves obscure 80s romantic comedies. But yeah, I got a couple of um, just things about it, you know, facts, you know, I love this. Um, the film was almost titled Perfect Timing. No idea why. I, I there was some adaptation, I think, from a book, so maybe it was it was something to do with that. Well, I think it's also based on a myth, isn't it? Ah, oh, is it? 
yeah. Egyptian myth by any chance? No, yeah, it is. It is. I think, hang on a minute, I've got a year. I think it's, oh no, it's a Greek myth and it's based on uh, Pygmal- Pygmalion. Oh, Pygmalion. So it's um, My Fair Lady, Pygmalion. Oh, is it? Okay, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, I can sort of see that element of it. The film was originally meant to be for an older character who was a lonely shopkeeper. And the producers wanted the great British actor Dudley Moore to star in the lead role. Again, you've just made him more interesting already. So when um, Andrew McCarthy came on board in the lead role, it was rewritten as a young artist. So, but I get that. But then you, you, you sort of got a slightly different twist on it. You got a slight, you got a, a Pinocchio sort of twist. I yeah, think, if this, you know, uh, if they say Dudley Moore was going to be cast, if, it, if it's that type of character, then yeah. Supposedly, um, the the guy who went on to direct it, what's his name? Michael... Uh, Gottlieb. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, not me. He had the idea for it by... He, he passed a, a shop window, supposedly. The light was hitting it from a certain angle, and there was an optical illusion that one of the mannequins moved. So supposedly that's one of the reasons why the film came to be the way it is. And also we mentioned earlier, um, Andrew McCarthy as being in that sort of Brat Pack type of um, environment. He was, this wasn't the only film he was in with James Spader. He was also in Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Less Than Zero, which I Mm. don't know what Less Than Zero is. I've heard of it, I've not seen it. Came out in the 80s, a couple of years apart from Pretty in Pink. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up there. Um, podcasts come out every Wednesday. If you want us to do a certain film in the future, don't be afraid to get in touch. Send us a message. Check out our YouTube channel as well, where we're hoping to do a lot more new content. Okay, cheers all.